Hello and welcome to this special RHS 2014 Chelsea podcast. A visit to the RHS Chelsea Flower Show is an incredibly exciting experience. It fills garden lovers with ideas to take home and translate into their own spaces and their own budgets. But the show doesn't just provide inspiration for grand garden designs, but also for new plants, tools, techniques, art and creativity. It's a place which inspires people to get involved, to try new projects and even new careers. Chelsea raises ambitions and aspirations. It creates gardening dreams. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the horticultural advisors at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. In this special podcast, we're going behind the scenes during the exciting build-up period of the RHS Chelsea Flower Show to meet designers, growers and horticulturists responsible for the most famous flower show in the world. We're going to discover how gardens are finding inspiration at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show this year. Chelsea is the most marvellous place for inspiration. It's a, a pool, if you like, of enormous ideas, of enormous inspiration, of new things, of things you hate. Why on earth have they done that? And things you love and go, oh, look at that. The thing about it is it, you can't be indifferent to it, and I think that's tremendous. It's the one week in the year that gets people talking, gets the media talking. The papers are full of Chelsea. Television and radio are full of Chelsea. All the vans come here and park, and you think, hello, they're taking notice of us now. You know, this one week in the year where they really sit up, and it's up to us as keen gardeners and growers to pass on that message in an enthusiastic and engaging way and to say to people, it's not exclusive, it's not just for a select few don't be put off by the mystique and the mystery and the oh my goodness and I can't do the Latin names people can come here everybody can take away something Alan Titchmarsh the RHS Chelsea Flower Show is perhaps best known for its high profile show gardens this year a team embraced by several designers is contemplation creating gardens as spaces for reflection and relaxation we spoke to three of the designers about their different approaches and asked what visitors who want to create some contemplative spaces in their gardens can learn from their designs. My name's Cleve West, I'm a garden designer and I'm doing the garden for MNG at Chelsea this year. Well, the MNG garden is based on the theme of paradise. I, I really wanted to remind everyone that you know, 2,000 years ago or so, or more, the ancient Persian gardens were... Um, not hugely different from today in terms of what you need from a garden. And it's all about enclosure, um, shade, water, refreshment, sanctuary, all that sort of thing. And um, it's just nice that all those elements have stood the test of time and I thought it was something worth celebrating. Well, I think in terms of a garden being a place for relaxation and contemplation, you can't beat a combination of plants, um, fresh air, water sound of water, sound of bird life in trees and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's, it's all there in the garden for us to really enjoy. You know, as I get older, I've come to realise the importance of garden in terms of health and well-being. You know, the exercise it gives you, the, the headspace it gives you in terms of time to just, you know, get away from technology and all that sort of thing. You know, just getting away from everything and just having a bit of me time. Adam Frost, garden designer, um, creating a home-based garden here at Chelsea. The garden's inspired by, um, well, home base were really nice to me after doing last year's garden. Um, well, they, they gave me freedom, but they said they wanted the garden to link back in with the Alzheimer's Society, which is their charity partner. Um, so actually, initially, I just started sitting down and trying to work out an Alzheimer's garden, really, you know, how you would work with someone with Alzheimer's. And as I created the garden, it just sort of, it didn't feel the right thing to do at Chelsea. It felt a little bit sort of formulaic and 
And then I sort of sat there thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, and I just started thinking about actually Alzheimer's as, as an illness and, and what it does. Um, and really, for me, it represented the importance of memories. You think about it, from whatever walk of life you come from, all we've really got is our memories. If you get to a certain stage in your life and then someone starts taking that away, it makes you realise that the importance... 2012, um, in January, my nan died, who was probably my inspiration as far as gardening. You know, she taught me how to grow veg. You know, it was her greenhouse, it was her lawn I cut, it was her rockery that I was the first rockery that I ever built. So she was a massive sort of loss from my sort of day-to-day life. Um, came to Chelsea, that was all wonderful, did some other shows and then got to June and um, my wife was incredibly ill and I thought I wasn't going to have a wife. And as you can imagine with four kids, it's pretty scary. Anyway, we got through the summer, she sort of got back on track. Come the October, my old man died. So <laughs> I'm thinking, well, anyone else throw anything, you know, but actually then you sit down and you think about these people and what they mean to you. So within the garden, really, if we start with Nan, yeah, she's the inspiration with horticulture. She's the one that sort of gave me that passion to grow things and, you know, grow, cook and just understand plants. My wife, my kids, that probably is my inspiration. That's probably the reason I get out of bed. And my old man, he was a great landscaper and he had an ability to do things with stone and water. And even from a kid, he would take me out on sites and teach me about stone and water. And really, it's the mixture of those three that have driven the garden. So really, ultimately, the, the garden's about a man's passion for stone and water in the English countryside. But it's trying to create a place where we actually just stop and we sit and we enjoy time together and we don't all run around like complete and utter lunatics as we do, you know. we um, Just to get off and just to slow down and actually have a connection with nature. Somewhere to cook, somewhere just to sit, talk, turn off electronic devices, and that's what I've tried to do here at Chelsea. My name's Matt Keatley, landscape designer based in Maidenhead of a company called Farm Roberts. Here at Chelsea, and I've designed a garden for Help for Heroes called Hope on the Horizon, uh, set out to, to design a garden that represents the recovery process our soldiers go through. The garden is based on a military cross shape, and the idea is, as you enter the garden, that is the start of recovery process. As you move through the granite blocks and the hard landscaping slowly become more and more refined, representing the soldier's physical well-being. So the further along the garden you get, or the further along the recovery the soldiers get, the, the more refined, the more deliberate the, the shapes are going to become. One of the main ideas behind the garden is the fact that it's going to be moved up to Colchester to one of the Help for Heroes recovery centres meant that it had to be an area where the soldiers can go to to reflect, to contemplate the journey they've been through and, and the bright future they, they have ahead of themselves. Each designer has used different techniques and a different palette of plants to achieve their effects. Well, the garden's very formal. It's um, based on an octagonal shape. It's a shape that was used quite a lot in the Islamic sort of gardens. And while I didn't really want to be a slave to the Persian garden theme, I thought I'd reference that by having this very formal octagonal pond. So that's right in the centre and that's a sunken space within which there's a, like an octagonal fountain. And that's our sort of big reference to the water from the Persian gardens because that was always, that was the lifeblood of, of gardens in those days and it was used to irrigate the whole space. It's got Islamic and Persian references in the garden but it's, you know, at first glance I think most people will read it as an English garden which is the intention. The planting is 
eclectic. It's typically sort of English, you know, a mixture of all the sort of things we love because we're so lucky in this country we can grow anything we like. In the um, Persian gardens, the ancient paradise gardens, you know, it would have been much more restricted. They would have had, you know, palm trees and dates perhaps and the actual range of plants wouldn't have been so uh, as much as we can grow here. So we're, we're enjoying that eclectic mix that we're so good at in England. All right, we're just stepping out of the rain because we've got thunder, hail and lightning and everything going on today. So yes, the, the front of the garden is a, is a gravel space with um, all the lovely things you can put in gravel, like herbs and um, we've, got, uh, we've got Rosa rubrifolia, we've got mint, we've got thyme, we've got... Um, I'm not sure if we're going to put lavender in there. The lavenders, what I'm trying to do with this, the front bit, is to make it sort of slightly slightly wild and the lavender that we've got looks a bit too manicured a bit too like it's come from a, a garden center so I wanted to have a slightly untidy feel to the entrance of the space before you step into this octagonal much more restrained and formal area and so the, the contrast is quite interesting because potentially you could make it feel like two gardens and the gravel garden actually is a metaphor for the the hostile desert landscape because that's really what paradise gardens were for they were a refuge from the environment of the desert which was very inhospitable uh, most of the time so um so yeah a simple metaphor for the desert that's the idea but a lot more english and full of plants to create the calm in the garden i mean what i've done is is i've initially used one material to create the main sort of paving and the structures and throughout the garden. So it's called Chicks Grove Stone, which is a, it's a lovely stone um, from down Salisbury Way, and it was actually used in Salisbury Cathedral. And they've reopened the quarry, um, and they've started to draw more stone out of it. So what I've done, I've used it in its raw state, and then taken it right up to a sawn and sort of, you know, more or less a, a brush state. And it's lovely just explaining that journey. And so that gives a whole sort of... It connects the garden to, you know, ultimately it will connect the garden to its landscape in a, in, a real, in a real place, which that's the thing you want to do ultimately when you're creating a garden. You want to connect it to its surrounding landscape. After that, at the back of the garden sits a lovely arbour, um, and I've used stone and oak, cladding with a lovely green roof, and the, the roof is planted, not just sedum, it's planted with um, herbs, so it's got thymes, it's got some heather in there, it's got chives in there, and the people up there that have been working on it I've said like it smells absolutely fantastic. After that, I've got sort of copper. I've used copper in the garden, which is which is in a sense my a reference to my dad's passion for geology. And then after that, really the planting's very driven by the English countryside. So it's just really about going out and and really looking. When I'm teaching, I say to people, don't. We, too many of us walk along in life and go, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. And nobody looks past that first layer and actually stops and just look at nature and look how things grow, look how they pop up, look how many of our ornamental plants are actually growing out, you know, native-driven plants. So that drives the planting. The planting is very simple, simple in the sense that there'll be lots of plants people can recognise. So things like I've got geraniums in there, I've got Siberica arises in there, um, which are lovely sort of just a little iris that loves moist conditions. Geraniums, you know, everybody will recognise. There's a mixture of grasses in there, things like Lugula, which is a lovely sort of um, tallish grass with a lovely sort of fluffy white head. Um, and there's a mix of ferns, um, which sort of pull the whole thing together. Um, the trees within the garden are just multi-stemmed hornbeams. At the back of the garden, I've got um, some lovely candelabra lime trees, but I found a lime hedge, which is really cool. I found a lime hedge in Germany, which I'm really chuffed to pieces with.
There's some nice links in the materials, so the, the York stone that I've used has natural dark veins running through it, which subtly links the dark granite blocks that we've got running through the planting. And that automatically draws the eye through from the paving through the planting up to the granite blocks, so all work fairly harmoniously together. The planting itself is very tactile, a combination of lots of different textures, so people using the garden are going to want to interact with the planting brush past grasses, pick up the granite, look at, look at bits and pieces in the garden as, as they walk through really. There's 60 blocks in the garden in total, 60 granite blocks, 13 different sizes and three different finishes. So as, as you walk into the garden it's, it's a split raw natural looking granite. Halfway through the garden it's slightly more refined so a hammered punch finish and as you get to the end of the garden or the end of recovery it's a perfectly hewn, perfectly finished block. I've used plenty of ferns, there must be at least a dozen varieties in there. I've got soft shield ferns in there and they're, they're quite nice because they're rather than upright in form, eventually when, when they're mature they'll, they'll grow out and sideways so they'll, they'll cover the side of the pond quite nicely, they'll cover up that pond liner. We've got Machusia, so ostrich or shuttlecock ferns, so nice and upright in form, uh, eventual, eventual height about a metre and a half I think, but actually what that does is it gives me the opportunity to plant three or four different varieties in a fairly confined space and make sure they work in a cohesive manner really, which, which is really quite nice to do, I think. I have used tree ferns and I think when people hear the word tree fern, they, they anticipate seeing a big wide brown trunk, whereas actually I've decided to go for quite young, so seven and a half litre pot small tree ferns. You still get the, the form an architectural value from a standard tree fern, so fronds that are four foot tall or 1.2 metres, but at ground, starting at ground level. So you fill a nice big space, you get really fairly rugged fronds, so actually you can brush past them and not damage them at all. Um, and that's, that's going to work really nicely in the garden. So what can gardeners who would like to create a similar sense of reflection learn from these designs? There are always going to be little pockets of uh, plant associations that people can take away. and. You know, seeing how the space is used, I mean, we haven't used a lawn, so it just shows you what you can do if you just think about the whole garden as being planting and hard landscaping. It sort of offers, offers more opportunity, really, I suppose, in, in terms of design. But uh, I think also not to be afraid of formality. I've, from, I've spent my whole life avoiding formality in the last couple of years, probably because I'm getting a bit doddery now. I've really warmed to it. The garden here is an enclosed space. We have to imagine that it's enclosed on all sides by hedging, uh, on, well, on three sides by hedging. And I think that does lend itself to uh, a sense of calm. You know, if you're in your own private garden, if you can green your boundaries, for example, and not see your neighbours, trying to create that uh, sense of calm can be achieved by disguising your boundaries. If I was going to, you know, go and create a new garden with a and give you that sense of calm in your garden. I really would be keeping the planting palette simple, keep the colours calm. And my garden really is just blues, yellows, whites and greens. So it's a, you know, it's a remiss of an English spring, but keep the planting calm. Um, and again, if you're sure garden, look at your boundaries. Look at actually what the garden's wrapped in. So many of us, we just create our gardens and we tend to ignore our boundaries and we think it's a fence. So we either paint it or we, you know, it might be a sense that you can put a hedge in front or you can change the detail of the fence and things like that. So again, the whole thing feels framed then, you know. And after that, water, great calming. You know, my water drifts down right through the garden, but you can simplify that just with the sound of running water. Um, that calms the space. Keep it simple, really. 
um, don't overcomplicate. Don't make it fussy. Don't, you know, and then just you'll have a place you can just sit and enjoy. There's lots, I think, the, the members of the public are going to be able to take from the garden. No one needs to be daunted. I, th I think a lot of the larger gardens out there, people might think that actually it's not realistic to put it in their own garden but a lot of the planting a lot of the planting ideas can be taken out and used in really a lot of a lot of locations it could be a city garden it could be a country garden there's lots of combinations in there that people can use um, same with the seating areas and just the techniques I've used throughout there's there's going to be a lot that people can draw from from the garden or that's that's my hope and ambition really one one of the techniques I've used through the planting to help people relax, help people interact with the planting is using everyday herbs in a standard border. So a lot of people I think day to day will use a vegetable patch or herbs in pots but actually put them in your put them in your garden, put them in through your standard planting schemes and what that's going to do in my garden and can do in anyone's garden really, around the fringes especially it's going to kick up lots of fragrance and instantly as soon as people brush past or move through the space it's going to put people at ease. Designers Cleve West, Adam Frost and Matt Keatley. For more advice on all aspects of garden design, visit our news section on the RHS website at rhs.org.uk forward slash design. Remember, the RHS Chelsea Flower Show runs from the 20th to the 24th of May. You can find information on all the gardens in the show alongside exclusive video content on the newly updated RHS website. What's more, you can now find out all you want to know about the RHS Chelsea Flower Show direct from your phone. The RHS Chelsea Flower Show iPhone app is available to download free on iTunes and features full details of gardens, plants and trade stands, access to news, Twitter and Facebook updates, booking tickets to RHS shows and lots more. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the special RHS 2014 Chelsea podcast. The stars of the RHS Chelsea Flower Show are, of course, the plants. Each year, nurseries from across the UK and indeed the world come together in the Great Pavilion to create breathtaking displays and to launch new varieties. This year, there are over 100 exhibitors filling the space with stunning colour and intoxicating scents. These include a display commemorating the anniversary of the First World War and another celebrating 50 years of the RHS's Britain in Bloom campaign. The Great Pavilion is a fantastic place to find inspiration about new varieties to try in your own garden. And visitors are often found, notebooks in hand, busily noting down their plant wish lists for the coming year. One designer who has literally put rare plants and plant hunting at the centre of her show garden is Sophie Walker. She's collaborated with Krug Farm Plants, a nursery that specialises in collecting rare plants overseas and then breeding them in the UK. Together they've created the Cave Pavilion. So I'm Sophie Walker and I'm making Cave Pavilion Garden at Chelsea this year. I'm working with Sue and Bled and Wynne Jones, the plant hunters who collect seed in the wild of plants which haven't necessarily been um, classified before. So many of the plants are rare. The garden is a white structure that's clad with uh, cast acrylic. It's basically a walled garden and at the front there's a frame with a hole in it. So in the same way that you would sit in a museum or a gallery and look 
at a painting hanging on the wall, you're asked to sit or stand and look onto this garden, but you can't enter it. So you have to sort of understand it. It's a three-dimensional painting, if you like. One of the most interesting plants that we're using is called the Eucodendron wartonii, and it's a new genus that's been discovered by Sue and Bled and Wynne Jones. So um, we haven't seen it before. It's one of the only plants in my garden that's in flower at the moment. It's part of the Hamamelis family, so the hazel family, and um, it's got a beautiful pink ribbon-like flower and um, there are only a few of them and one of the challenges with this garden is that you really have to search for the plants that you're looking at you need to match what 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 there is in the plant list to um, what you can find it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle the only other plant that's in flower in the garden is an undescribed species of camellia which Bledon found in uh, Vietnam. So that's in flower. There's a tiny white flower. It's halfway back the garden. It's about three metres away from where anyone can stand and you're going to have to spot it from a distance. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the cycle of growth and decay and then of course regeneration. So this garden includes many um, dead leaves, lots of leaf litter, lots of soil, lots of moss. So it's very much about the place that plants come from or the place that life comes from and um, how important that is to include it, not just for wildlife, but for our own sake of looking at a garden and getting more from it. And to recognize that there is beauty in something that is possibly decaying or that may be seen as dead but actually it gives way to new life and I think that's really interesting about a garden I think something we could all learn at home with our own gardens it's a sort of vegetative tangle um, it's something that is impenetrable and if you walk into it you ruin it you break it in some way and if you talk to Bledon Wynne Jones about um, plant hunting and what it really means he said that a few times he's he's landed himself in a wild place that's truly wild and it's so wild that the only way to enter it is to to ruin it and each time he's come across that he has had to um, walk away and leave it intact so I want this garden to feel like a pristine place and something that the more time you give it, the more it opens up to you. Hello, I'm Sue Wynne-Jones from Creek Farm Plants, Carnarvon, North Wales. Every plant in the display is one of our collections, so um, we, we know exactly where they've come from, where, they, where they've been collected, so it's very exciting. We've got some fascinating plants here. Um, Sophie's got a great eye and also a very good knowledge of plants. It's been a pleasure to work for her. She's just so excited about it all. We're using some of our old favourites, the Schefflerers. We've got Sheffler Taiwaniana, we've got Sheffler Macrophylla, and then we've got some lovely woodies that we've never shown before, some Aces, um, some Sorbus, Carpinus, uh, and then there's, of course, the Ucodendron, which is new to science. Uh, we discovered that in... Um, Vietnam a few years ago and it's actually flowering on the display. Ucodendron, which is named after our, our guide Uk in Vietnam and then variety uh, Wartonii, which is named after our dear friend Peter Wharton who was curator of the Botanic Gardens in Vancouver uh, who sadly died a few years ago but he was with us when we collected this. It's um, it got the most lovely heart-shaped leaves and the new growth is almost like a deep aubergine and it's got the red hamameliaceae, which is the witch hazel family, a uh, little flower, and it's just delightful. I'm hoping that we're going to inspire people to be a little bit more adventurous with our plants uh, and give them the confidence that they're hardy, they're easy to grow. You know, they might have difficult names, but believe you me, they're so easy. And all they have to do is to come over to Wales, come to Creek, and you'll see them growing happily in our gardens there.
You can find details of all the exhibitors and nurseries at the 2014 Chelsea Flower Show on the RHS website. Here you can also use our plant finder tool to find new varieties to try. rhs.org.uk forward slash plants. On the website, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the free fortnightly RHS gardening podcasts. Each edition contains a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening, plant care, pest control and garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables and expert seasonal advice. Go to the website rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or subscribe to it every fortnight via iTunes. One of the most eagerly awaited and most talked about displays at the show this year is Alan Titchmarsh's garden celebrating 50 years of the RHS's Britain in Bloom campaign and his own 50th year working in horticulture. Uh, this year I celebrate my 50 years in horticulture as a professional, which is hard for me to believe, not about anybody else. Um, I started in 1964 as an apprentice in the Parks Department in Ilkley in Yorkshire. And um, the RHS said, how about celebrating 50 years of Britain in Bloom, because Britain in Bloom has been going 50 years, and your 50 years in horticulture by doing a garden at Chelsea, not in the medal stakes, as it were, but as an exhibit for the RHS. I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't do that anymore. I did, the last one I did, I did get a gold medal in 1985. That's 29 years ago. It's a long time ago. And I thought about it, because I'm not doing the broadcasting this year for the BBC. I thought, well, I quite fancy it, really. It's rather exciting. So I got together with Kate Gould, who's a um, garden designer, and between us, with the help of Mark Gregory, who's Landform, the, the builders, as it were, the constructors and contractors, we came up with this idea. And I said, well, what do I do to celebrate 50 years of, of me and of Britain in Bloom? And I thought, well, 1964, that the 60s, the early 60s, were not that exciting on a domestic scale in terms of garden design. I mean, sort of posh people having gardens done by the likes of Russell Page and Lanning Roper, but that didn't sort of reach the, the man in the street, as it were. Um, and they were a bit dull, and it was lawns and rose beds and rockeries. And I thought, well, if I do rockeries and rose beds right to the present day and have a garden that's kind of two bits, one 60s and one 2014, it's not really going to work. So I thought, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? And I thought, well, hang on. I started my life in Yorkshire. I'm a Yorkshire, and I lived there until I was 20. And then I came down to college and to Kew uh, to learn my trades, my craft. Uh, and finally, now, uh, I live in Hampshire, but I also have uh, a little house and garden on the Isle of Wight on the coast. So these ideas started to gel, and I thought, what about from the moors to the sea? So my journey, as it were, I mean, sound like an X Factor contestant, from Ilkley Moor right down to the coast of the Isle of Wight. Um, can I do a garden which is divided into the back is moorland with pines and birches and heather and some dry stone walling coming through to a little bit of beach with some waves lapping and a, and a summer house, uh, you know, a beach hut. And I thought, oh, that's a bit more exciting. So I worked with Kate and we, we sat down and put this thing together. So here it is from the moors to the sea. It's very, very exciting. And we've got some wonderful dry stone walling on it, done by the Dry Stone Walling Association. And the walls actually come down from Yorkshire. So it's a real bit of, Yorkshire really has come to, to Chelsea. Britain in Bloom is the most amazing community initiative. It started 50 years ago to encourage people in towns, cities, villages to beautify their surroundings. Flower beds, hanging baskets, window boxes, they're the obvious things, but also greater community issues, larger gardens, larger open spaces, and just making people aware of the value of plants and flowers in our daily lives. They, they enrich our lives. 
Right, we've escaped the noise of the angle grinders and come inside. This is a wonderful place for people to have dinner. But at the moment it's covered in polythene, but it's quieter. I always used to admire Ilkley's Britain in Bloom efforts, which is where I grew up, because even if it was just a roundabout in the, the local street that was covered in flowers, you'd go past and people say, oh, look at that. And people, I think, sometimes underestimate the lift that you get just from a view, a vision of something beautiful. It's why we go to art galleries and museums um, to look at sculpture, at paintings, while we go to concerts for music to uplift us. And yet gardening and the visual art of, of improving the, the landscape and the environment is so often taken for granted and not mentioned within that kind of area. And I think all over the place, particularly in cities where there's a great sort of urban landscape, there's a lot of hard landscaping, you know, concrete, steel, glass. Uh, and, and landscape architects, I always tease them because they always bring in the green stuff, architects, to sort of ameliorate the harshness of their buildings. We go in and soften it all up, make people feel better. And that happens everywhere. It's not just in, in the inner city areas, it's in rural villages as well, where the countryside bleeds into the town. The very fact that people are getting together, are getting involved in improving their surroundings, just that social interaction, which today is getting rarer. Everything you do, you can do on a little screen. You don't actually have to interact if you don't want. That's, for me, really sad, because interaction with people, friendship, um, acquaintanceship, improves our own lives, but it also improves life in general. By getting together you can make everybody's lot better and that interaction is something that Britain in Bloom fosters. It gets groups of people out there on their knees planting things and the difference it makes to lives can't be overestimated. Britain in Bloom judge Geraldine King from London has seen the huge impact the campaign can have in communities. One of the amazing things is looking at the range of age groups and the different kinds of people who are involved in In Bloom schemes. And that covers everybody from, you know, we've watched young children plant meadows. I've seen that at, particularly at West Ham Park. I've seen, you know, different age groups working together, encouraging young people, and also groups with disabilities. And I think, particularly, it's just, you know, getting everybody to socialise, a real cohesion of the different community groups working together. And again, in different, you know, we're talking about different ethnic minorities and different groups in London, um, and particular Manchester and Nottingham, and, and throughout the UK. And so I think it's great to see um, a real inclusiveness of the whole country getting involved and behind gardening and that's what it's all about. Geraldine King. For more information on RHS Britain in Bloom and community information go online to rhs.org.uk forward slash communities. While so many horticulturists exhibiting at Chelsea is their ambition, for other people becoming a horticulturist is their goal. Alan Titchmarsh again. It saddens me that more careers advisors in schools and careers uh, teachers don't consider horticulture as a particularly, you know, high on their list of priorities to recommend their pupils to do. It's often been regarded as something you do if you can't do anything else, which is, is firstly saddening and secondly hugely inaccurate. We sat down and worked out how many different branches of horticulture there are and we stopped at 60 from science and research to art and design to food production to landscape gardening to painting, you name it, you can do it and the garden offers so much scope and I notice a lot of people come to gardening as a second career 
with age comes wisdom. They realise later on in life, I love being out there. Yeah, we get wet, you know, we get cold, but on those wonderful sunny days, and you only need one in spring or summer when it's a sunny day, and you're out there and you've got all these people in offices, and you think, oh, I've got the best job in the world here. It keeps you in touch with nature, it keeps you connected with reality. People come to my garden, they say, oh, what a wonderful escape. And my line is, it's an escape to reality. This is the real world. The news on TV every night is the overlay that we put on this world. This is actually what it's like. It's yours for the taking. Take it up. Learn how plants grow. Learn to help them. And if at the end of your life you can leave your little patch of earth, you might not own it, but you might just have been working on it in the community project or whatever. If you can leave that in better heart than it was when you came onto this planet, you've paid your rent for being here. For many people, their route into a career in horticulture is through taking a course or training with the RHS. This year at Chelsea, several RHS apprentices from the School of Horticulture have been given the opportunity to work on some of the high-profile show gardens. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Dan. I'm uh, the apprentice at RHS Wisley. Uh, I'm currently working at the Chelsea Flower Show with Crocus, working on the Telegraph Garden, uh, just setting up plants and helping clean, clean stuff up. Uh, just generally getting ready for the show. Hi, my name's Nick. I'm also an apprentice at Wisley. I'm also working on Chelsea, but I'm working on the Lon on Perrier garden. The experience that you get from doing it with the RHS is unbelievable. The opportunities, the designers you'll meet, the experience of the people there. I don't think I would have got such opportunities any, anywhere else on, on, on this course. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, invaluable experiences, really. Generally, I find that I'm actually just a lot happier in myself. I love working outside, um, I love the outdoors, so working outside is uh, definitely sort of where I want to be and yeah, like I can definitely see myself pursuing like a career in, in horticulture. It's eye-opening, it really is, um, and the amount of plants here and sort of designers and everything going on, it's like a massive building site, so it's, it's yeah, it's quite a learning curve really. <laughs> It's a very inspirational place to be. You've got the top designers here. Uh, they've obviously brought a lot of young designers in this year, so seeing them, seeing them get the centre stage is, uh, it's been very encouraging. Just, uh, yeah, just learning off the, the people here has been very inspirational, you know. It, and also, we, we, we worked for Crocus last week, you know, looking after the plants that are being used here this week. So just seeing how they've gone from nursery standard up to, you know, gold medal award standard is uh, quite impressive. RHS apprentices Nick Drury and Daniel Vaughan. You can find out more about courses and careers in horticulture on the RHS website, rhs.org.uk forward slash courses. That's all we've got time for in this special 2014 RHS Chelsea podcast. I hope you find lots of inspiration for your own gardens in this year's show. We'll be back in a fortnight with our regular RHS gardening podcast. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. So for now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all here at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show 2014, goodbye.